The topic of Meals with Jesus is intriguing, and I'm excited to be here with you today. When I started to prepare this reflection, I found my head swimming in all the possibilities. As I read, I was surprised to see how ubiquitous food images are in the Gospels. In the book, Eating Your Way Through Luke's Gospel, Father Robert Karras invites his readers to count all of the food images within the Gospels, and he finds a couple hundred of them. I began to wonder why. Why did the Gospel writers decide to focus so much attention on meals? What does this teach us about Jesus? If Jesus was interested in improving our understanding of religion, I imagine he could have spent more time in Jerusalem teaching in and near the temple. If his focus was on helping us to live better lives, I imagine that he could have spent more time preaching in the streets or at philosophical schools. Teaching at meals seems inefficient. It takes a lot of time to reach a few people. Why meals? What happens at a meal that doesn't readily happen in other contexts? Why did the gospel writers believe that the best way to come to know Jesus was by telling stories about him at meals. This got me thinking about my experience with meals. I love to cook. I commiserate with Martha when Jesus came to her house. When family and friends visit my wife and me, I want them to enjoy themselves with good food, good wine, and good company. I want them to know that they're important, and I show this by putting forth my best culinary effort. Our kitchen is smack dab in the middle of the house. As people gather there to talk and laugh, I offer appetizers and drink. I enjoy serving them. It's almost a need for me. And then finally, dinner is ready and we go into the dining room. I nervously look over the food and hope that it's prepared well. We pray and then we eat and talk and laugh. It's a time of closeness, and if we define love as doing what's best for the other, then I hope those gathered around the table feel loved. I know that I do when I hear little signs of appreciation, like the sound of mmm as people eat. One of the things that's very odd in the Gospels is that Jesus eats with everyone. I have a limited scope of people that I choose to eat with, but not Jesus. Wealthy or poor, friend or foe, a few or many, sinner or saint, he seems at home with all of them, and all of them seem to be attracted to him. Isn't that odd? Can you imagine being a public sinner, someone that's despised by the religious authorities, and inviting a prophet to your home for dinner? What an incredible risk for the sinner. Why did they eat with Jesus? I have a process for answering questions, like this, when they tug at my heart. I start my process with deep listening as I pray. I trust that my question, which is hard to put into words, is God tugging on me. There's something he wants me to know. So I listen to the stirring within me. After weeks, and sometimes months, I eventually recognize that there is a knowing in my heart and a knowing in my head 
that have become reconciled. I know the answer to my question without really knowing how I learned it. And what I learned preparing for this talk is that the only way that people from such diverse backgrounds could take a chance on eating with someone as different as Jesus is if deep down they knew that Jesus was safe, that he could be trusted, that he had their best interest at heart. I think people experienced a radical love when they were around Jesus, even if he wasn't telling them what they wanted to hear. And they were willing to take a chance on trusting him by eating with him. As we investigate meals in the gospel, I want to make the argument that Jesus is offering his dining partners healing. His love for them is unconditional. He wants what's best for them. There's no hidden agenda with Jesus, so he can be trusted. The question for his dining partners is, will they accept the healing? Let's go through the meals in the Gospel of Luke and see what we find. I think you can then apply what we learn to the other Gospels. The first clear meal occurs in Luke chapter 5. Jesus calls the tax collector Levi to be a disciple, and Levi accepts. To celebrate, Levi throws a great banquet for Jesus and invites his tax collector buddies and many others. Aware of this, the Pharisees ask the disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? It is Jesus that responds to them, saying, those who are healthy do not need a physician, but the sick do. I have not come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. So what do we make of this? What is Jesus saying to us? I invite you to listen closely to your own reaction to this story. Who are you in the story? Are you one of the dishonest tax collectors or a righteous Pharisee? Do you feel unsettled by that choice? I certainly do. But remember, Jesus is not interested in putting down anyone. He's interested in healing them and you. Even though it often feels brutal, Jesus is asking us to honestly look at ourselves and admit what needs to be healed. So what's the path to healing for someone aware of their sin? The tax collectors at the banquet know that Jesus sees their sin. And the wonderful news, the gospel, is that Jesus isn't shocked by it. He doesn't say to them, I know you're rotten scoundrels, but I choose to look the other way. Instead, he says, follow me. He doesn't reject them. He accepts them as they are. Because Jesus doesn't send mixed or hidden messages, they sense that they can trust him. And healing, or if you prefer, reconciliation, is possible. The tax collectors feel secure enough to look within themselves and see the truth. Once they do this, they are on the road to being healed. They're forgiven and reconciled to God through his Son. But what's the path to healing for someone unaware of their sin, like the Pharisees? Jesus has called them, too, 
While outwardly they behave better than the tax collectors, they also know deep down that they need healing. They also sense Jesus' trustworthiness and his love. They want it, but they're afraid. What if Jesus knew their dirty little secrets? So they hide behind their mask of being good, and Jesus can't help them till they take the chance and admit to both themselves and Jesus that they are sinners too. Jesus has pointed out their path to healing. They need to trust the Son of God so that he can empower them to safely look inside and confront their wounds. This reminds me of Alcoholics Anonymous. The first step is to admit that you're powerless over your addiction, your sin, and that you can't manage by yourself. That is what Jesus is calling the Pharisees to do. He says to all, trust me, I love you. If we can rest in that love, we're on the path to being healed. In chapter 7, Jesus dines at the house of Simon the Pharisee. As they reclined for dinner, and only men would have been invited, a woman dares to enter the dining room and moves towards Jesus. Father Karras suggests that she probably came to anoint Jesus' head, but because he was reclined at table, she couldn't reach his head. So she did what she could. She bathed his dusty, dirty feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and then anointed them with ointment. We don't know what caused the woman to do this. Luke calls her a sinner, but we don't know why. Surely she must have met Jesus before now, but we don't know. What we do know is that she shows great love and humility, and Jesus is not embarrassed by this in the least. He accepts her lavish gifts and says, your sins are forgiven. She's healed. She's reconciled to God through his son. When Simon invited Jesus to dinner, I bet he was excited to have a reputed prophet accept his invitation. After all, Simon is a leader. And then this woman shows up and ruins everything. His ego is bruised. And though he tries to maintain his composure, his body language makes it clear what he's thinking. Jesus should know better. Sometimes we read Jesus' response to Simon as being critical, but this might be wrong. There was no expectation that a host had to give water to his guests for washing their feet, greet them with a kiss, and anoint their heads. It would be a great sign of love to do these things, but it wasn't expected. Simon wasn't rude to Jesus, but Jesus points out the great love shown by the woman. And Simon now knows that this is also his path to reconciliation, to healing. So who are we in this story? The sinful woman or the good Pharisee? Whichever, the path to healing requires trusting Jesus enough to look deeply into ourselves and heal what's wounded. The next meal is in chapter 9, when Jesus feeds the 5,000. 
There's a disagreement among theologians about how Jesus accomplished this miracle. Some say that it was Jesus' teaching, an example of sharing the five loaves and the two fish with the crowd, that in turn caused the crowd to share the bread and fish that they had stashed with their personal belongings. Others say that this isn't much of a miracle and that Jesus must have done more. But I think that would be a huge miracle. Up till now, the people that Jesus has dined with were worried about their status and the status of other guests. Now groups of 50 gather together and they treat each other like people. They share what little they have and it's more than enough. There is a spark of love, of acceptance. They become more like Jesus and they glimpse the kingdom of God, a place where you and I are loved unconditionally and we love unconditionally. Once again, people were healed and reconciled to God through his son. As Jesus journeys to Jerusalem, he's welcomed by Martha. Martha's annoyed by the lack of help from Mary, who prefers to listen to Jesus. While the story may illustrate the tension between prayer and action, I also see a strong healing message. There's often a tension within ministry where we sometimes feel put upon because we have to do more than our fair share. The question is, is ministry a burden or an act of love? The honest answer for me is that it's both, and that bugs me. If I'm breathing, I have to be doing something. So why do I sometimes feel put upon when I'm serving God? The answer, unfortunately, is at that moment, I would rather serve myself. It's in noticing this desire within me and accepting it that opens me to Christ's healing. When I do this, I'm being reconciled to God through his son. In chapter 11, Jesus is invited to lunch by a Pharisee. When questioned about not ritually washing his hands, Jesus is not kind to the host or the other guests. That said, I think his message is still one of love, and it's an important message to us. He tells us that while the appearance of what we do is important, the reason we do it is paramount. If we judge others on appearance and operate out of our ego, if we judge others harshly and offer no help, if we stroke our egos instead of healing our sins, then everything we do that makes us look good actually causes us to rot inside. This message is harsh, but Jesus is running out of time to get through to all of us that behave like Pharisees. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by God's love. One of the hardest sins to overcome is the sin of wanting to be right. I think it's the most prevalent sin within the church. We judge others, we make life harder for them, and there's little love. The only way my sin can be healed is if I'm willing to own it, to recognize that it is in me. If we refuse to trust the Son of God with our sins, we won't be healed and we can't be reconciled 
not because God doesn't want to heal us, but because we refuse healing. For good measure, this message gets repeated in chapter 14 at another meal with Pharisees. Remember, when Luke wrote, he wasn't concerned about Jewish Pharisees. He was concerned about the sins within his community, the things that kept Christians like you and me from loving relationship with God. It's relatively easy to look good compared to being recognized as a loving person. Being a loving person requires prayer and a meek and forgiving heart. It requires trust and a willingness to examine our wounds that cause us to sin so that we can be healed and reconciled to God through his Son. This is the message of the last meal on the road to Jerusalem when Jesus eats with Zacchaeus, the tax collector in Jericho. I want to conclude with two observations. First, we come to God through our sin. This may sound completely backwards to you. Most of us are taught that we come to God by being good. What Luke clearly tells us in these meal experiences is that the people who recognize their sin are the ones that are open to God's healing touch. If we think we're good, then we're most likely trying to save ourselves, like the Pharisees. Jesus' frustration with the Pharisees should give all good folks pause for concern. Second, Jesus will tell us at the Last Supper to do this in remembrance of me. The question is, what does the word this refer to? Jesus is asking his disciples to remember what happened at all the meals that they had with him. He's asking them to remember the love, the healing, the reconciliation that took place when he fed the 5,000, when the woman washed his feet with her tears, when he welcomed sinners, when they trusted him, and how his healing was thwarted when people refused to trust him and instead relied on their self-righteousness. He asked his disciples to do all of this in remembrance of him. He is asking us to do this in remembrance of him. I started this talk by asking, why meals? Why did Jesus choose to teach at meals? He taught during meals because he wanted to change our hearts. It takes time and trust, and that needs to be done one-on-one. It is also how the healing touch of the living Christ is experienced by the world today if we, the body of Christ, choose to embrace it. May God continue to bless you and heal you as you continue your journey to him.